What did he say? There's a guy in our quartet Talks like no one I've heard yet He mumbles, mumbles all the time He's got no reason and he's got no What did he say? You know, not gonna say so. What did he say? If I can go What did he say? He said, bring something round, we'll have a ball today. You are listening to the next voice you hear with Juan Yoon. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the next voice you hear. This is one of your hosts, Juan Yoon. And I'm Nevin Ryan. Hello, humans. Hello, humans. So on today's episode of the next voice you hear, we're going to do some cool stuff. And there's a running theme, I take it, uh, that starts with the, the notion of 3D printing, which everybody is raving about. So shall we get into our first segment, Nevin? Yeah, let's do it. So um, our first segment, which is called Cool Hunting. Now, how do you like them apples? So what we're doing here is we're bringing something that's neat, something that's cool. Hopefully you can find it interesting and, and it'll spark some inspiration on your end. Uh, but this week, Juan, um, it was funny. I remember when we were at the uh, Sotheby's International Realty Conference, the global networking event, GNE, in, in Vancouver last year? Yes. Yeah, so there was, there was like a presentation uh, given by this guy that worked for this not-for-profit organization called New Story, and they created 3D printed houses, essentially. Uh, they, they work with innovative uh, companies uh, in that sector to end homelessness. And anyways, but what really piqued my interest um, was that technology that they presented, which you can create entire housing complex, complexes through 3D printing, large 3D printers, basically. So I went down a bit of a rabbit hole the other day and discovered something um, even more interesting called 4D printing. Have you heard of that? No. What it, first of <laughs> all, um, I just want to give a shout out to newstorycharity.org. So that's, that's the URL, newstorycharity.org. But their name is New Story. And I think they are like next gen habitat for humanity. There was a oh, video yeah. on screen at that conference and you literally watched homes, little homes being printed and through time-lapse, this entire community in the developing world, I forget which country it was, but they printed an yeah. entire, really a village. And these are beautiful little homes, right? And, yeah. and then they furnished them. And then as an organization, they give uh, assistance to the community to become sustainable, to become self-sufficient mm -hmm. over time, et cetera. And, and I've never seen anything like it. It was sort of like if you took an NGO, if an NGO and Habitat for Humanities had a cyborg baby, mind-blowing. Um, and I don't know, now uh, it might be difficult for them to be raising money because so much money is going into either things related to Black Lives Matters or COVID-19. But um, there are, I didn't know this, almost 1 billion people around the world who do not have access to adequate shelter. And that's kind of highlighted right now when, you know, because of a pandemic, you have to go back into your home, you know, to the safety of your home. And of course, we forget sometimes yeah. that a billion people don't have one. 
to go mm -hmm. back into. And one of the solutions is if we have enough resources, literally create homes and communities. Like, like that. Like that through <laughs> 3D printing. Yeah. You know, it's not no. as simple as just like print a community. A community is far more than its homes. It's the infrastructure, it's the culture, et cetera, which evidently New Story works on as well. But that was super cool. But anyway, I just wanted yeah. to pause on that to let the readers no, know it was, about it. It was amazing. And the stuff that I was reading about on 3D printing or 4D printing, which is, it's essentially like 3D printing where like you're creating structures and forms, um, but the materials that you use are like programmed to re react to their surroundings or their environment. For instance, like researcher, researchers are creating objects that, that fold or that change shape just in response to heat or to wind or to um, cold temperatures, whatever. Um, so the applications of this are just like endless and extremely beneficial to us, right? So like in one example that I saw the, uh, for like infrastructure or like our, our water systems, all of them are made uh, with pipes and valves, um, which are made of like steel, copper, plastic, whatever, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And these are just rigid forms, like rigid materials, static materials. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure someone listening has actually like experienced a burst pipe and that's caused because of that. It can't, it can't adapt, right? But with these, if you make these, uh, these valves or these pipes, so using this technology, so that they can expand or contract uh, and change their capacity for water uh, when the environment changes, that like cha that, that changes everything. Amazing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so cool. And in some ways, uh, it sounds almost like the way our blood vessels operate yeah. because they are pipes, but they're adaptive and flexible, right? They're not. They're not exactly you know, rigid objects. Unless you're eating McDonald's every day, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In which case you have ossified. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's just yeah, there's a lot of cool applications. Another thing, it wasn't 4D printing, but it was 3D printing. It was called Cool Bricks, and this thing was really cool. So like back in like back in the day, and I mean like back in the day, like BC. <laughs> They would use slaves, of course, to wave like leaves as fans, right? But they would also have water in front of them because it's kind of like evaporative cooling. So what they've done is they've created these bricks that like takes water from the air. And so let's say they're in extremely hot temperatures. The, the, the heat goes through the bricks, but the bricks have water, right? So it's blowing cold air on the inside. It kind of reminded me of, remember when we interviewed Janine Benis, Benis and she uh, was talking about how termites their their mounds right their yes. uh their anthills like are like a nice breezy 23 degrees on the inside when outside it's like 48 degrees in the desert yeah the um it's a form of kind of homeostasis the uh, termite mounds yeah. are which are cities right because they hold hundreds of thousands to millions of organisms of, of of citizens but somehow they engineered it through their own enzymes and their own engineering genius these valves that in their structure that regulate the temperature and keep it an even i think she said an even 83 degrees year round even oh, yeah. if uh, they're all in like tropical places so you're saying we can print bricks that sort of breathe that kind of yeah that do that in a way that are structured yeah it's wild anyways that's that's surprisingly five minutes.
Awesome. So we're on to the, the next segment, uh, which is called Bad Ideas. Yes, and this one in the theme of, of printing and replicating, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And one of the things I always wondered about, um, you know, you can look at Star Trek just for its technologies, you know, and then go online and, and listen to physicists actually and engineers talk about whether that is in fact possible or not, right? So for example, the transporter, really, really difficult, you know, to, to reassemble your molecules, you know, in another <laughs> place. But uh, the replicator always fascinated me. You remember the food replicator? So Jean-Luc Picard would go up, you know, this little slot would open in the wall and he would say, you know, tea, Earl Grey, hot, right? And a, a perfect cup of, of Earl Grey tea here. So I, I always thought, oh, isn't that interesting? Could you do that? But I always thought it was way in the future Then more recently with 3D and 4D printing, with 3D printing that can print tissue, organic tissue, I thought if we can print organic tissue, what would stop us from shortly being able to provide food replicators and marketing them? And then the question came up in my mind, how would you market a food replicator that could make you whatever, not just tea, but it could make you like fried rice, yeah. or chicken, fried chicken, et cetera. And, and so, hey, a whole thought experiment <laughs> yeah. there. Well, I think you're going to be marketing to either like extremely lazy people or extremely busy people. <laughs> either. Well, <way. laughs> well let, let's set up the thought experiment. And by the way, you know, uh, you're probably too young to remember this. Back in 1985, Terry Gilliam of uh, Monty one. Python, <laughs> of Monty Python uh, directed this amazing movie called Brazil which is kind of a dystopian future. Oh yeah, I've actually heard of that. Have you seen Brazil? And in Brazil, people go to a restaurant and all the food is made probably through a replicator. It's all sort of gray. It's like gray blobs <laughs> and slob, slop. But at, at the table, when you sit down, they put in front of you a picture in a frame of what your food is actually supposed to look like. Like, yeah. you know, human beings made it, which always made me laugh. So let's set up the thought experiment. If the replicator was reasonably affordable, maybe it was like an expensive microwave in terms of cost. And you know that it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to make food just like, you know, a restaurant chef or your mom makes it. It's going to be not quite as good. You know, sort of like in the early days of vegetarian food, when people would dra drag me to a vegetarian restaurant and give me like veggie burgers. And I'd be like, this is not a burger. This is... It's so edible, saying, but it's not that good. You're saying this thing is not going to be replicating it to a T. It's just going to be I, a, a lesser form. I'm pretty sure that for a period of time, it's going to be a functional, affordable replicator that just doesn't make food as perfectly well as a human could, yeah. who's skilled, a skilled human. But it makes decent food. It's, it's edible. You can eat it. So I wonder. that... Yeah, no, I, I wonder if we like look for inspiration is like looking at old microwave ads, seeing what they would say. Because <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of changing the, the kitchen uh, and eating like as much as the microwave would have, I guess. Well, I wasn't alive during that time, but I'd imagine it was a bit of a, <laughs> a change completely in terms of how people approach making their food. Yes, but I think the thing about a replicator is on top of that, 
one of the benefits, which may or may not help to market it, is that it may be more sustainable. In other words, we know that yeah. our agriculture is not sustainable. No, right? I was thinking so that. Yeah. If you could, you know, sustainably create a certain percentage of our food through replicators that would convert, let's say, some you know common compounds or compost back into edible food, hugely sustainable. Let's say it was reasonably affordable. But we know from human behavior that just because something's sustainable, affordable, efficient, it's, it's not usually enough for people to, to use it. So question that came up in my mind, are we marketing this as a substitute for, you know, hand cooked food in a sense? Could you, is it an augmentation versus a replacement of hand cooked food? And is there a threshold quality level in terms of the resulting food that it would have to achieve before people would actually want to pay money for it. Right. So these are all totally speculative. Questions, yeah. But. I think you've got to like, at this, the way that I would approach this is like at the start, like you have to establish credibility. You have to like, cause there's going to be a lot of, um, regardless if it tastes the same or not, like there's people are going to be like, where's this coming from? Like, why? <laughs> like this doesn't seem healthy you need to have some kind of credibility or some spokesperson that can endorse this. If you're going from a, like a flavor perspective, you'd get like a Jamie Oliver. I feel like Guy Fieri would be chomping at the bit, but I feel like he would depreciate the brand. <laughs> um, you could try but, to get Gordon Ramsay, Ramsay if he doesn't like throw yeah. a temper tantrum. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then maybe even like kind of just do it more like pop, pop ups where like you're at, you're kind of, having people cook beside it and then having the replicator and like doing blind taste tests and saying like, well, this one cost the ecological footprint of like was this. And then for the replicator, the ecological footprint was zero. But to your point, like, is that enough? I, I don't know. In 20 years, I think that might be enough. Like, Is it an either or, or is it a blend? Cause I think often we start with either ors and then things turn into blends. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when, when TV came in, I guess, you know, people said TV will replace radio. So in other words, they were thinking in either ors or binaries it's, when in it's fact, it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a either blend. Or. No, it's a, no, it's a blend. Like, like I've started cooking a bit during the pandemic. I've never been a particularly good cook, but uh, as I'm making stuff, occasionally I realize I don't have that ingredient. So I am making you know, a dish, let's say I'm making, I've learned how to make pineapple fried rice recently, which I'm super proud of myself for. It's very yeah, sad, that sounds, that but it's really sweet. fucking good. <laughs> I bought a walk and everything, but there are several ingredients I, that I didn't have. And that's when I thought if I had a replicator, I'm still going to cook with my hands with a walk. But if I had a replicator with a couple of ingredients that I just didn't want to run out and buy, or that just maybe were not available anymore, or, or near me, then I could augment what I was doing or assist what I was doing with the replicator. That's really when I started to think, oh, I would buy one if it was not a replacement for cooked food. It was a augmentation. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think it's, it's true. Like it, if it's, if it's on the cheaper side too, like I think was, as much as it was a joke at the start, I think like you are marketing to people that are either extremely busy that, that have no time to make food or people that are extremely lazy who just don't want to or don't have the skills to make food. I think you're right, but I think there's potentially a third type as well, meaning, you know, I have a lot of friends who love going way out into the wilderness 
And they have to really think about the food that they take with them, unless that they are such a naturalist that they can cook things that they find in the forest, which is dangerous sometimes. Yeah. If there was a handheld replicator that they could take in their pack, can you imagine oh, how much more convenient that could be? That's pretty In other words, sweet. you just take organic compounds from the forest, put it into your replicator, and voila, you have baked beans. And you're not going to nice. be super picky when you're hiking or mountain climbing. <laughs> God, you, no. don't, you don't need it to be as gourmet. If you, unless if you know you're glamping. I mean. yeah. Unless you're glamping. Well, that's actually that's a little bit over five minutes here. I, I awesome. feel like we could talk about that forever. Um, yes. Okay. So the next one is our what if, and yes. um, what did you, you, you brought an actual article for this one. Well, you? I'm very excited about this what if, because it actually is based on a BBC article that um, we're going to provide the link for that, obviously, in the, the notes for mm -hmm. our listeners, but it's a BBC article from 2019. I, be, I believe it was just about a year ago and it's called what will art look like in 20 years? <gasps> You know, and you as a painter and me as a writer and somebody who loves art, modern art, uh, it was an amazing topic when I read it. Even though it was a year ago, my first reaction as I started to read it was, oh, this is so out of date because this is before the pandemic. It's before Black Lives Matter. So I mean, the world has turned upside down since then. And as I read it, I realized these guys, whoever wrote this, his name is uh, Devon Van Houten Maldonado. How's, how's that for a multicultural name? Uh, Devon, Devon Van Houten Maldonado wrote a brilliant prescient article where he poses some questions. And here are a couple of the headlines from the article, right? One is, get this, the future of art is black. And he talks about the rise of the African diaspora in terms of art, you know, African, African-American, Afro-European, Afro-Latin art is starting to trend globally. I know that it, that's going to accelerate, is, is accelerating as we speak because of mm -hmm. what's happening in our zeitgeist Absolutely. right now. And recently, uh, last year, I went to the Louis Vuitton Museum in, in Paris specifically to see the Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibit, which was brilliant. And Jean-Michel Basquiat lived uh, in New York at the same time I did when I was a young man in the late 80s, early 90s, he and David Warnerovich were very famous, very well known in the local community of sort of edgy, queer, political activist art. Well, I don't know if you know this, but most of the art that has sold at the highest prices, the most valuable art to date has been primarily by white men until Jean-Michel Basquiat broke that mold. And I think his painting sold for some astonishing amount of money and it's for the first time you know black artists or artists of color or or protest artists are commanding the kind of attention yeah and no it's that they deserve and like now we have the platforms for them to actually like art just was so elitist and it, it wasn't that accessible right but now you have well you have social media you have instagram it's a little bit more crowded but for instance, those countries that are underdeveloped, but they have, they're just like steeped in talent. They have a little bit more, uh, we have more accessibility to them and they have, uh, they can actually project their work into the world and actually get recognized. So I think the, the more this keeps kind of going on and especially what's going on with Black Lives Matter, I think we're going to see a huge influx, uh, of the, of those kinds of, of painters or, or artists, um, kind of coming into the for forefront for sure. 
Yeah, I think what, what we're going to see, and we saw it in the 1920s after World War I and the Spanish flu pandemic, you know, this explosion, what I would call a biodiversity explosion yeah, it was of nuts. themes, mediums, technologies. You, it was the rise of Dadaism in response to World War One. Dadaism was a political response to well, yeah, World it was, War One. Dadaism was a commentary on like, the absurdity of everything. They're just trying to challenge the meanings of things. So taking two objects that are not related at all and putting them together um, and just trying to find meaning in that because that's what people were trying to do with the war. Mm-hmm. So you have and also that, that decade, the 20s, you know, saw the parallel rise, because I think they're connected, you know, of modern physics, which mm-hmm. is, is very, um, for people in the 1920s, you know, Einstein's theories of relativity and then shortly thereafter, the beginnings of quantum mechanics. I mean, that's a very different view of reality. That's it's a fundamentally transformed view of reality. And I think there is no coincidence that cubism came into being at the same time. In other words, art and science have always spoken to each other. Artists and scientists have always often had relationships and discussions. You know, oh, hundred percent. It's just a same, different way of finding meaning. Yes. <laughs> And I yeah. think that anytime something major changes the way we view reality, the immediate effect of it or, or response, you can see it in art. And you saw it in the 1960s because of massive changes in the way we saw reality, the way we related to each other, social mm-hmm. norms changing, et cetera. You saw it again in the late 80s and early 90s because of the AIDS crisis, because of the Reagan era and the feeling of oppression under Reagan and Thatcher during that mm-hmm. time. We're seeing it again now. So I am actually excited. I'm, I don't know what art's going to look like in 20 years. I actually oh, think gosh. the next 10 years is going to be fascinating when yeah. it comes to art. Like, I think that, I don't know, I have this theory that you kind of were hitting upon it, but like it's for science, technology, and art, those lines are just going to get more and more blurred. There's going to be like a new, uh, like emergence of a new art, a type of artist, I should say. Um, so there's going to be like a lot of, I guess, Leonardo's, like a lot of Da Vinci's that are, yes. that are hyphenates, right? Yes. Like a, an artist that can code. You know what I mean? Like these yes. people that can leverage technology to kind of realize their vision in a, such a crazy and unique and innovative way. So well, I think what, I'm, what I'm very excited about is, for example, the intersection, the chemistry between activism, activist art, and creative yeah. technology. Right. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they're into the same person. You have a creative technologist who has something to say when it comes to protest or activism. And by the way, for our listeners, uh, when we get to travel again, one of the best protest art exhibits or museums I've ever seen is in Vancouver. It's the Rennie Museum, R-E-N-N-I-E, by Bob Rennie, who's a very famous entrepreneur in Vancouver. He has a massive collection of only protest art. From starting mm. in the 50s and 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, etc., and I am sure that he and his kids are going to be augmenting that collection over the next several years because of the explosion in activist art and, and activist yeah. campaigns. I think there's going to be a whole new type of like expressionist art, like because expressionism really had a big resurgence in the 1920s with German painters like uh, Otto Dix and Gross, and like they were just trying to. Ex, like express the feeling rather than like an object, right? They were trying to mm. express like the feelings of the war. And I feel like we're gonna see a lot more of that after this. Like it's just mm-hmm. gonna be awesome. I'm so pumped. 
and even movies. We didn't even touch about movies, but that's five minutes. <laughs> that's <laughs> Maybe definitely... for next time. Maybe yeah, for next yeah. time. But yes, uh, let me just end uh, by saying in the article, uh, they really note uh, by the end of it that, uh, quote, the future of art is multiple and plural. It's not a future, it's actually many futures, many more than we be, we're even used to today. Wow. I think that's right. Yeah. All right. How well, cool is that? <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah, that that uh, that concludes our podcast. I think this is our third <laughs> third episode of the In Home Edition. Uh, yes. I'm Evan Ryan. I'm Juan Yoon. Thank you for joining us for Next Voice You Hear, and uh, we will catch you next time. Bye.